Okay, thanks for listening, guys. Today we're talking about the movie Prospect, and joining us today for the as uh, the production designer of the movie is uh, Matt Acosta. Thank you, Matt, for joining. Yeah, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, I guess there's many answers to this, but uh, I think perception of many people are if the movie is kind of like a low budget movie, it shouldn't look very good. But I think this movie looks very good. And I was kind of wondering what kind of challenges did you have, like budget wise? Was there like creativity always like conquered uh, budget challenges or how was it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think from day one, we wanted to do it ourselves. It was always kind of a DIY sort of movie. Yeah, I think we had an intention when we started out to make the best movie that we could. We didn't really know how much money we were going to get, but we knew that we were going to be working probably with an indie indie sized budget because, uh, you know, it being our first movie and what we were trying to attempt to do. Um, we wanted to do it outside of the studio system and we wanted to build our own studio. And I think it like all came down to it being a labor of love and it was about creativity, tenacity and dedication. Um, like the Chris and Zeke, they had this image in their head of what they wanted that was really strong. Uh, and I joined on during the short film and, you know, that was really fun to make and it was an exciting process. Uh, but then from there, we knew that we wanted to develop it. Like we made the short as basically a trailer for the feature film. Yeah. And our intention was to make it into a feature. And then, you know, for four years on and off, we were, they were refining the script. I was refining the art. Uh, we brought in our concept artist, Lori Greasley, soon after the short went online because he had seen it online and enjoyed it. And we kind of worked on it and filtered it and filtered and kept kept working at it and um you know we had something that looked pretty good the lookbook we made i was really proud of um would have been something i'd be happy to have on my coffee table and uh we we were able to get a lot of people to buy into the process with us um that i don't know if you know this but uh, a lot of people who worked on the movie had never worked in film before we had like a bike designer and a carpenter and electronic engineer a bunch of cosplay people ah, okay. it was just like a ragtag group of people uh friends and friends of friends and then we even did some uh random people that came through like craigslist and stuff like that okay um but it ended up being a really cool group of people who like bought into it they liked the idea of the movie they loved the art of the movie so everyone was excited as excited to be there as we were yeah um and i think that kind of made for a more dynamic environment and we did have one benefit which a lot of movies don't have is we had seven months because of the way we were doing it we built it uh in a studio we bought our own or rented our own warehouse and turned that into our studio yeah, essentially the pictures and we worked on it for seven months. And most films don't have that benefit to slowly be working on everything. And yeah. so in that environment, it was really collaborative. It was really fun. Um, you know, we weren't too, uh, we weren't too crazy in business. Like we were a little bit more on the fun side. Yeah. And so all, spending all that time on it and working together with all those people, um, over time, you just are able to kind of build something that's, that's special. And um, I mean, there was definitely limitations I know that there's certain things that we could have used more money on. I think a good example is our helmets. Okay. Yeah. Um, we, we, we had, we had like Chinese jet pilot helmets for the short <laughs> film. And there was a lot of limitations to those because they were really heavy. Like we didn't have the infrastructure to hold them basically. Cause in a jet you would, Yeah. but um, they were heavy for the actors and the, um, the mechanism to flip up the visor was clunky and there was condensation issues. Yeah. So our goal with this movie was with the best we could with our budget was to make helmets that were light and uh, dealt with the condensation and heat issues. So we made helmets that had removable visors. They were just magnet 
we had magnets connect them to the helmets. Okay. And, you know, in, in theory, it's a great idea. And it worked for the most part in short takes. But in longer takes, uh, the actors would be forced to be wearing these helmets for a long time. And, you know, yeah. they'd get a little bit hot and uncomfortable. And it was, you could tell that they were getting visibly uncomfortable. Okay. Um, and there are pumps and fans and stuff that you can use, which we had on set. But really, in such a dialogue-heavy movie like Prospect, you can't really have the, the fans and pumps on because it will ruin the dialogue. Because we were literally uh, recording dialogue via the mics that you see, the practical mics that you see on the characters. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of many limitations. But we, we just, you know, we're thinking of creative ways around all of our problems and trying to figure everything out. And I think in the end, we ended up making a movie that looked like it was a bigger budget than it was i hope yeah absolutely and i think uh since you mentioned like the microphone and the like the helmets and was it like from day one you had kind of planned that you didn't want to go this standard heavy cgi kind of like science fiction way because i what i love about the movie it's it, it even though it feels like a science fiction it's very like grounded to the core it never oh for sure it never like takes off into this like heavy cgi or anything yeah, from, from day one, we were all about making a gritty, grounded, practical-looking sci-fi movie. Yeah. Um, I know for Zeke and Chris, as well as for me, this is what we initially bonded over when we first started meeting and talking about the short film, is we love old movies. Like We were raised on Alien and Blade Runner and um, you know, Star Wars to a certain extent, and you know we love 2001. Um, there's just all these movies that look so good, and yeah. have practical sets, and they have practical effects, and the, any any computer tricks are either nil or limited yeah. there's matte paintings in those movies so we love that effect and i think we wanted to and we, we did kind of realize or notice that um cgi was kind of taking over the sci-fi industry and if you, you look at some contemporary examples there was things that we just really loathed and uh wanted to try to do our do our own sort of thing and make it better um if we could learning from the lessons from old movies so that was from day one, basically what we were trying to do. Um, We, and I think the thing that really excited me the most was it was like, we're going to build all these props if we can, and we're going to build miniatures where possible, um, which is (laughs) really (laughs) exciting for me because I absolutely love miniatures. I have a miniature head. Yeah. Um, We did build a miniature for the the landing pod. I think you, you, you shoot, shoot it once in the forest and that's an actual five foot miniature. I think it's uh, 25th scale or something like that. But, um, you know, in an ideal world, I would have made uh, the freighter a miniature as well, but we definitely had budget limitations, so couldn't build that. So we did have to use CGI to a certain extent yeah. um, because, you know, it's cheaper and it's easier. We had a really great um, CGI person. Uh, his name is Ian Hubert. Um, he's just this really awesome, prolific CGI um, director, and he, he made a lot of great work for us. But I think... Um, Zeke and me and Ian and you know everybody who was participating in anything that was related to CG in the movie we kind of learned lessons from other movies that did have CG that weren't like really CG heavy I think Jurassic Park is one of my favorite examples that people love to talk about it's like every time you see a computer generated uh, there's a huge mixture of non-computer generated and practical and they have this really nice mix of it and they, they they're able to mix it really well and hide the CG or kind of just um cover it sometimes by using mirrors or using reflections yeah, or exactly. putting it through something. So that was something we tried to do as much as possible when we were using CG in our movie was um, we would put it behind like a pane of dirty glass to ground it to reality. Or um, there was other situations where I literally build a practical 
arm or something like that that would be out of focus but it would be in the foreground so that would actually ground the cg into reality okay um so every time we were trying to use it we were trying to use those tricks to make it still seem grounded and realistic yeah um you know and i think we we succeeded in that i hope yeah absolutely um about like the visual style i don't know if there's any answer to this but for us like outside industry like i guess Mm -hmm. when you start uh, making the movie you kind of have like a and uh, how to say an idea of how it's going to look like and then you need to like the environment needs to match with the props and the props kind of needs to everything needs to blend in how do you kind of like figure that out that it yeah i mean since since the beginning um the forest has been a huge part of the movie like i think when zeke and chris started before even i was around when they were talking about making a movie they had both been hiked in the Ho Rainforest where we shot the film, okay. um, which is nearby. It's maybe a couple hours drive from where we live. Um, and that was a, a base inspiration for them. It's like this overwhelming green, there's ferns everywhere, and it's kind of its own character in the film. Yeah. Um, so that was, one, that was one kind of uh, hallmark for the film. But then also um, you see in the short film a few things established. Uh, see the main character. She's wearing blue and white, which are two really non-naturally occurring colors. Yeah. You don't see them a lot happening in nature. And so they really pop in mm. a green forest. True. Um, I know that was something that it was a rule throughout the film is um, see that character specifically is the only one who wears white and blue. No one else. Like Zeke was really on top of this throughout the movie. Like if ever I'd sneak <laughs> blue into something, he'd be like, nope, remove that blue. Because yeah. we wanted it to be really uh, important and related to that character, even though it's kind of subtle yeah. and sort of an unconscious thing for the viewer. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think if you watch the short also, you'd notice that the um, the, the villain in that character yeah. named the bandit, though he never has a speaking part, he has some uh, similarities to Ezra. I mean, we made Ezra a bit more dynamic for the feature film. Yeah. But um, his suit is green and it kind of blends in and it blends into the forest, which is kind of a, uh, almost monstrous at a certain, to mm. a certain extent. Um, and then I know like literally visually what's on the camera, Zeke wanted to go for this sort of retro feel. He had these, uh, really cool uh, anamorphic lenses there. I think they were old Russian lenses okay. that someone in great Britain, they, uh, they modify to make it fit onto newer cameras. So we're using this to make it literally look like an older, an older kind of retro sci-fi yeah. Uh, feel of movie so those were like you know some of the hallmarks from the short film uh, and things that were always intentional but over time it does kind of develop um i know as we brought more artists in the kind of the the vision of the movie would kind of shift along with those artists because they bring something new to the table yeah um also as we're you know we scour we're always just scour i mean part of my life is scouring for references like I'm on Reddit and Pinterest and Instagram constantly just looking for new things. Okay. Um, and sometimes I'll find something and be like, oh, that's perfect. That fits into the movie. And that'll kind of jump its way into the visual style of the movie. Or, what kind of things um, are you thinking about them? I mean, I mean, so from the beginning, like some of our favorite artists like Mobius, Chris Foss, John Harris, Sid Mead, all those guys are like the old school sci-fi artists. Yeah. Um, and we kind of pulled them into the early stages, but I know like we were there, a good example would be, we were building the mercenary pod, which is what we built uh, actual scale. It's like a 20 foot tall pod that you see in the last scene of prospect. Yeah. Um, you don't really see a lot cause it's in low light, but we were trying to figure out a, um, a, a paint scheme for it. And Chris, Zeke and I really love Chris Foss and we were trying to figure out when and how we could fit that in. Cause it's a little bit ostentatious and wild, but we kind of felt that it felt fit the, uh, the aesthetic of some of the mercenaries. So we decided to just do a Chris Foss paint job on that thing and put like stripes all over it. 
Um, I think also we had found that there was some European ships in early World War II, uh, they were like painted almost a zebra pattern. It's a little bit more geometric, but it was like a zebra pattern yeah. just because from far away with reflections of water, it works as camouflage. And we pulled that into that Merc pod, um, which is kind of Chris Foss-esque. So like things adapt over time. Um, I think one of my favorite examples is I was always looking for um, certain set dressing or minor props, things that aren't the hero props that we were building from scratch. So I'd be on eBay looking for things. I think my favorite resource to search on eBay was like Russian or Eastern Bloc military surplus. Oh, yeah. Um, and then, you know, I would end up going down these long rabbit holes and be like, oh, look at this, look at this. And we buy these new things and bring them on to set. Um, I found the bandages, the bandaged cases that we use are these fabric bandage cases from like the fifties that I absolutely fell in love with. Okay. And so I think things like that inspire the style as you move on. Um, you know, so we came in with this early idea of what we wanted the movie to be, but then over time it totally evolved. The color palette changed a little bit. The vision changed a little bit. Um, yeah. but you know, in the end it's pretty cohesive. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I think like, yeah. When you start watching the movie, you see how much like influence it has kind of as a viewer, all the props, like just like the headphones of a sea. I think it's, it looks very cool. Mm -hmm. Like small, small things like that all over kind of makes a big difference. Yeah. I mean, I think I bring this example up all the time. I think Z kind of uh, thinks it's ridiculous, but (laughs) there's a, in the movie Jurassic Park, I'm bringing Jurassic Park up again. Yeah, There's sure. a Barbasol can that they put in the DNA samples that Dennis Nedry carries around. Yeah. And I love that prop as a kid. Growing up, I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and like, um, I think one thing that I set out to do, on top of making a nice-looking film overall, um, to have those props that just pop out and excite viewers. And they want to know more about it. They want to get their hands on it and look at it. Yeah. I think that was something that I really looked for. Like the headphones, we wanted to be sure that it looked really fun and really cool and something that a teenager would actually have. Yeah. Um, I know our graphic design team really kicked ass. Uh, that was something that we knew we were going to have to do some graphic design, but we didn't think about how much we were going to do. And then we ended up doing a ton of it. And I really think that paid off. I think one of my favorite props that we made was uh, the manual for the the space pod. You barely see it. It's like... Um, sees dad pulls it open and looks at it really quick oh. and then puts it down yeah but it's beautiful it's amazing it's yeah. one of those amazing <laughs> props um and then you know i think guns in a lot of movies can be iconic or they can be non non-iconic but um you know the blade runner gun for instance is a really iconic weapon yeah. and the star wars pistol is a, a really iconic weapon um, we wanted to make something iconic but we also went at it from anywhere it's a place where we wanted it to be grounded so we're like, how can we make laser guns that are not really laser guns, but are still projectile weapons? Yeah. So we came up with this whole theory about um, them being sort of like magle- maglev guns or uh, sort of like a, a, a projectile. Yeah. So it would take little particles of metal. So we had this little medical, metal post on all the guns. And the idea would be like an electrical pulse pulls particles off of that little piece of metal and then using magnetic um, the forces they pull it down the barrel and throw it and so that ended up informing the dialogue and that's why they're called throwers Mm. um and that also allows for a lot of interesting um ways that you can change the weapon and change the prop because it doesn't have to be this nice solid barrel like a rifle as long as the magnets are there yeah we uh that allowed us some flexibility so the flat pack rifle which i think is my favorite weapon i think ezra's is absolutely gorgeous um it being made of copper but um I think the rifle that C and Damon carry is really gorgeous and uh, it's flat pack. And I thought that was such a cool concept for uh, these sort of everyday, not professional, um, you know, 
people going out into, it seems like something that a regular person could buy at an REI or Home Depot or an Outfitter or something like that. Um, and I think it, that really made it a really neat prop. Um, and you, you do see it get rolled up and cleaned during the movie. Um, so I think we, we cut some of that scene. I think early on we shot a lot of that gun being cleaned and then we realized, okay, we don't need to be so excited okay. about this gun. But... <laughs> I see. Yeah, I, I think like, I don't really care or I don't buy props myself. So the only props I've been like interested in before is like the blaster in Blade Runner. But mm -hmm. but in Prospect, when see when they arrive at the planet and she goes out and you see the reflection of the lightning in her helmet, I was like, I want that helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Man, speaking of speaking of the reflections on helmets, that was you know, I think Zeke was like, after this movie, I think it all turned out great. But I think after the movie, Zeke said, I'm never going to shoot a movie with helmets ever again. Because it was really fun and it was an interesting process. Yeah. But uh, by putting a helmet on almost every single character in the movie, you're adding a giant fishbowl-shaped reflector <laughs> yeah. onto every single thing. So him and the camera team needed to literally, like, hide themselves and, uh, like, cloak themselves looking so, like some weird forest spirits um, <laughs> to be avoided on the, on, the, on the camera as a lens. And then there was even a rule on set that everyone had to wear dark clothes. So like during every shoot, everyone would have to crouch down. Luckily we had, you know, the forest floor literally covered in ferns so we could hide behind those. But every time Zeke would yell cut, everyone would pop their heads up and look like hedgehogs. <laughs> but that was just a huge limitation that we had was trying to deal with those reflections from the, the, the advisors. I know other movies have avoided it. Like I heard the Martian, they literally didn't have visors and then they just put them in with CGI, which I mean, that would have solved multiple problems for us. The heat and uncomfortable problem, the condensation problem and the reflection problem. Yeah. But, you know, we don't have that budget. So yeah. we just had to find our own creative ways around it. But I think it really pays off, though. I, I really love all the reflections, like especially, uh, well, we're not going into this, but like the 4K release and when it's filmed in high resolution and you have HDR and it reflects everything, like, mm -hmm. of course, everything gets kind of like you can't hide anything but it really pays mm -hmm. off the whole visual experience i think yeah i mean i think in the end zeke did an amazing job shooting this i think it was a gorgeous film and i love i i think it's really cool to see the dynamism of the frame like the forest is so busy and so beautiful and shooting that i think i mean they shot in 8k raw so exactly um and then we brought it down to 4k so it'd be really interesting i would love to someday see it in an 8k theater i know there's like this japanese theater that might have reached out to zeke once and said something like they have we have an 8k screen <laughs> and you know that that got me super excited that maybe maybe someday yeah we'll see an 8k cut of this movie i think that would be amazing yeah <laughs> absolutely uh, so, but uh, I heard also like that you get like moist and stuff within the helmet, so it's like oh yeah, it's a lot of problems. Well, you can also see it, but it's a good effect though when C is running from those uh, when she's about to get sold or they want to buy her those uh, right. Guys. Yeah, it was it was an interesting. Um, I mean, a lesson learned from the first one. Uh, we had like wipes on set to deal with this condensation on the short film, but we like really set out to do our research in the, in the feature film. We sent off plastic visors that we had um, vacuum formed. We sent those off to companies that put this permanent coating on them. We got it back and it didn't work great. And we were kind of disappointed by that. And then uh, we tried like 10 different defogging uh, liquids and wipes and stuff like that. In the end, I think the best solution was uh, something that's used for like hockey masks because of the temperature changes. Okay. Um, and, and that's why, you know, having the magnetic release visors that we had on them, 
um, at whenever Zeke would yell cut, the crew would run in, pull off the visors and then put a coat of that uh, anti-condensation stuff on there. Um, and it generally worked, but sometimes during the longer takes, you could see things fog up. And then there were scenes like when, when uh, C's, like you were saying, when her um, filter is running low and it's not working as well and she's stressed out, yeah. you do see the condensation coming up on her helmet. And that's interesting after putting non-fog stuff on a helmet for the entire process to, to intentionally make it look nice. And uh, <laughs> we had to do a little bit of artful uh, cleaning of that visor to make it look like it's sort of foggy, but not too foggy. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Is, was it like easier to shoot like those night scenes regarding reflections and stuff? Or was that like, did it become like more difficult or how was that compared to the daytime? There was, yeah, there was less fog. There was uh, less fog on the visors at nighttime. Yeah. Um, the, the night had its own set of challenges because it was low light and we were mostly doing natural light. I'm going to do a little spoiler here and let you know that we did have artificial lighting on set. Yeah. But for the most part, Zeke was shooting in natural light. Um, and the nighttime changed a lot. So we had to have this giant light that looked like a reflection of the moon or, um, and then, you know, that fire that played pretty heavily in that first scene in that last scene. Yeah. I think um, overall though, I think it wasn't as hard to shoot at night. Um, granted it was hard on everyone's bodies cause we had to completely switch, you know, we were doing day shoots and then we had to flip to night shoots and that kind of threw everybody's sleep rhythm off. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's not fun <laughs> to get up at three in the afternoon and then go film a movie and then come home at six in the morning and go to bed and try to sleep during the day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that that was part of the part of Zeke's shooting uh, and part of the process of shooting with natural light is we were literally avoiding the sun and chasing the right time of day um, throughout the whole process. Um, we, we shot in the whole rainforest, like I said earlier, and that is one of the wettest, most overcast places on earth. It's like always rainy and always cloudy. That's why it's so green. Yeah. Um, but when we happened to be filming, it was just weirdly unseasonably sunny. It was like 80 degrees and bright sun, okay. which was not what we had intended. It was in, in the springtime. So we were expecting a lot of overcast. So what we, we were forced to do because the afternoon, mid afternoon was just blazing sun and that's not what we wanted the film to look like we had to wake up really early at like four in the morning <laughs> and get to set in the dark and then start shooting from like uh 5 30 until eight and then we'd have to call it quits and either go shoot something else that we can find some shade for or just not shoot until the afternoon to match um the the afternoon light to the morning light so i know that was a huge limitation but it ended up making it kind of look nice and overcast and because the, the overcast sky acts as natural diffusion for the light. Um, and then throughout the process, we even actually got lucky. Um, Canada at the time happened to be having these really bad fires. Okay. And that smoke was coming down over the border <laughs> and over the Olympic Peninsula. And so in some days that added some nice diffusion. And even, I think there's one shot of the sun. I think you kind of hear the su song music kind of the score comes up very menacingly yeah. and Zeke's doing a long lens pull yeah. through the trees and you see this really kind of crazy looking sun. Yeah. That was because of the fire. Like, I think we were all looking up the sky and like, wow, look how red and beautiful the sun is. And Zeke pulled out his camera and take a shot of it and ended up being part of the movie. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, you were mentioning the music, like did that get decided at the end or how does that process work with like soundtracks? And yeah. So um, the, the composer, Daniel Caldwell, yeah. who I should shout out, he's amazing. Like, I think uh, the score ended up being one of the coolest parts of this movie. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. Score. It sounds amazing. I think like it's like 
it could have been like a high budget movie like that soundtrack mm-hmm. sounds very impressive yeah or- i hope more people uh start uh, hiring daniel for work because yeah. he's he's super talented yeah but um he's he's actually the the brother of chris caldwell the writer director ah, okay so uh he's he was there the entire process like he would come and visit set and look things out he would make some notes i think uh as they were shooting um they were always giving notes to daniel i think he had you know he composed some rough things early on he ended up doing some changes um over time and then uh during post-production is when everything was recorded and uh, scored and made made just perfect but uh over time he was kind of developing it and i know um throughout the whole process zeke and chris wanted to do um, something, uh, and this is with Daniel's input as well. They wanted to do something that was more orchestral, you know, yeah. and had some choir elements to it. Uh, I think they wanted to avoid, even though we all love synths, uh, we think, uh, we were thinking synths have kind of grown a little bit cliche and they want to do something a little, little bit different to add some more gravitas to the, to the planet. And, and that's what they ended up doing. Daniel even pulled up some really old, I can't remember the names. I apologize. No, but he pulled up, you know, he used a hurdy gurdy. I know that okay. for, for a lot of, um, sound effects and then this really old saxophone like instrument that's rarely used he so he was just pulling out things that would kind of add to this weird sort of menace that that he ended up pulling off in the film i think cool yeah yeah i was just just lastly wondering also is there was there any point in, when you were creating the movie where you just like understands like okay this is working like uh, like that like first scene when you get to the rainforest or something or is it like evolving so much <laughs> underway that it's like hard to say i mean uh my experience on set is always just like panic i'm running around <laughs> just like oh no what's breaking now what's breaking now what do i need to fix um like we replaced ezra's backpack in the middle of the film and like i had to redo his backpack on a lunch break um <laughs> it was like, so like generally i'm panicked but then there's like these certain moments because you get to uh, watch the monitor sometimes and when i'm sitting there watching the monitor yeah. and seeing what they're shooting i'm just kind of like wow this is gonna look this looks really good and it's gonna be really cool in the end you don't really know what it's gonna be like yeah. but like i have some stills on my phone that i was taking that i was like oh my god i'm so excited how cool this looks yeah. and like there's a shot of the the miniature that we that I just took randomly on set, and I was like, "Oh, this is exciting." But you know, in the end, you never really know. And um, I mean, my personal experience of working on certain films and commercials and stuff like that, once it I see it, I'm always like a little bit disappointed. I always find something to complain about, even if people are like, "Oh, that's pretty good." I like find all the issues. With yeah. it. I was actually really pleasantly surprised when I first watched Prospect. They, Zeke refused to show Zeke and Chris refused me to sh- show me anything. Um, they were showing, you know, they were doing viewings for people to get notes on things as they were editing, but they were like, we want to wait, we want to wait for you to watch it and watch it like when it's done. So I didn't see it until we premiered it at South by Southwest. Um, and I was blown away. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't find anything that I hated and I wasn't frustrated (laughs) by anything. I wasn't stressed by this process. I was totally engaged and immersed in the world. And I think that was for me, it was like, wow, a complete success because (laughs) I wasn't able to pinpoint anything that I hated. I think I've watched it about eight, ten times now. So okay. now I can watch it and see things that I would fix. But uh, uh, <laughs> the first viewing, it passed that test. Yeah, yeah. I think like lot the yeah. When I watched it today earlier, I was kind of like checking all the reflections to see if I could find something, but I didn't find any mistakes or anything. I was like maybe there's a guy I find in the reflection that shouldn't be there, but couldn't notice yeah. anything. But 
I, I've definitely looked for those reflections, and Zeke tells me there's one or two. But, okay. Um, I I can't find them. That's for sure. <laughs> all right. I I don't think I have anything else to ask you about. You kind of answered all my questions. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm always excited to talk about prospect. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt. And uh, for everyone mm. listening, if you want to watch the movie, I think it's available on Netflix in at least many countries and. You have it on Blu-ray, and if you want the 4K Ultra HD, you have to import it from uh, Germany, which is the only place that has it at the moment. <laughs> well, lucky, lucky Germany. <laughs> lucky Germany. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye.